0: Yeah, so the Azure guidelines have now made reference to notifying an ECMO centre early if you have it in within your own hospital where last occurs. Fantastic, notify the perfusionists and the the teams relevant to get that going. But certainly, if you're in a in a peripheral hospital, you need to institute your ALS two with your deviations to the algorithm that we've just mentioned. But also certainly notify an ECMO centre and prepare for transfer because the resuscitative efforts and CPR required for patients with last can be prolonged, and therefore ECMO can be utilised to assist um, with ongoing. Uh, prolonged um, resuscitative effort.
1: Welcome to episode twenty-seven of the ups and Gani Quick Care Podcast. Hi everyone! This week we have a great interview with. Uh, Uh, one of our fellows Chris on uh, local anaesthetic toxicity but before we get to that I just want to uh, big shout out to uh, Sneha and Jeremy who guessed the uh, quiz correctly. Um, The blood gas that I put up was actually uh, from the Everest project which is four doctors who uh, um, were studying the effects of hypoxia and that was taken at 8,400 meters just below the summit of Everest. Um, So this is a um, a project that has been run uh, for a number of years now studying the effects of hypoxia and they're hoping to translate that into um, so a better understanding of the role of hypoxia in critical illness and in intensive care. So uh, I'll leave a link to um, the New England Journal of Medicine article which shows, um, which discusses this and where I got the blood gas from. And um, if anyone's interested, um, have a listen to um, a podcast called Top Med Talk, Um dot com. It's just the website, uh, or you can find it on iTunes. And uh, they interview one of the um, uh, members of that team that was on that expedition, Dan uh, uh, Martin. I think his name is. He's a anesthetist anis- anis- from from London, and uh, he had the most hypoxic blood gas. So uh, it's very interesting and um, um, educational. Hi everyone, uh, welcome back to the show. Um, this week I've got uh, Chris McGrath, who's one of the um, anaesthetic uh, fellows, provisional fellows, working with me uh, in the women's hospital um, that I work at. And uh, he's going to um, uh, give us a bit of an update on um, um, LAST syndrome, which is uh, stands for Local Anaesthetic Systemic Toxicity. Um, and uh, he gave us a great talk at the um, department meeting that we run here regularly, and, um, and uh, he's a bit of a sort of local expert on it now, having uh, read up on it. Um, so uh, one of the things he's going to talk about is um, acknowledging that uh, not all the listeners are going to be um, anaesthetists. He's going to just very briefly go over the uh, what, what the syndrome is in the, in the um, basic pharmacology. Um, but then we're going to sort of also um, touch on some new uh, interesting things uh, that have come out on the latest ASRA guideline. ASRA standing for, what does it stand for, Chris? Um,
0: American Society of...
1: American Society of Regional Anesthesia. Yeah. So the so in this new guideline, they are going to talk. They do talk about things like ECMO and some other interesting um, uh, topics. So stay tuned. Uh, and if if, uh, if that's the sort of thing that grabs your attention, then maybe even skip ahead. All right. So um, thanks for uh, um, agreeing to uh, do the do this interview, Chris. So um, do you want to just briefly revisit um, the underlying pharmacology of um, of the syndrome for sure. us?
0: Thanks for having me, Roger. Um, so firstly, local anesthetics, therapeutic mechanism of action is to block sodium channels in nerves, and we utilize local anesthetics in our clinical practice to uh, reduce pain signals firing to the central nervous system and therefore to provide analgesia for patients. So if local anesthetics are administered in supra therapeutic amounts or uh, administered directly into the bloodstream in a, in, a, in a toxic dose, they can cause significant problems for both the cardiovascular and central nervous system through that sodium channel blockade effect. Yep. So, in a dose-dependent fashion, we see local anesthetics block inhibitory interneurons first, followed by excitatory interneurons, um, and this can then manifest the the, the symptoms and signs of, of last. So, specifically with the central nervous system, um, non-specific signs and symptoms might include tinnitus, perioral tingling, numbing, uh, followed by excitatory phenomena such as confusion, agitation, and seizures, then leading into depressive symptomatology such as drowsiness and coma. And looking at the cardiovascular system, initially the excitatory phenomenon, we see a tachycardia is arrhythmias, um, and progressive hypotension leading to de- the more depressive effects of conduction blocks, bradycardia and arrest. Yep. So that's sort of the the profile of local anaesthetic systemic toxicity.
1: Okay, so so yeah, basically it's a pretty serious um, condition, isn't it? So there's not many things in medicine where we... Do something to the patient that could definitely kill them, and it's like directly a result of uh, of our actions. So, something that anaesthetists uh, we think about a lot because we do chuck around local anaesthetics a lot, don't we? Certainly, um, do. yeah. And it's pretty scary, you know. These things are pretty rare, but um, but they they can happen, and um, yeah, it's a pretty uh, pretty scary scenario. So, knowing uh, how to avoid getting in that situation in the first place and how to manage it if it happens is pretty important. But um, it's not just anaesthetists who chuck around local anaesthetics, is it? So um, Certainly not. There's there's other people who are involved in the administration of local anaesthetics, so um, I think this is something we all need to be aware of and uh, have some understanding of. All right, so uh, Chris, tell us what are the sort of likely scenarios or likely um, situations where, say, in a women's hospital, uh, obstetrics and gynaecology, where we might be giving um, local anaesthetic uh, drugs that could cause this?
0: Yep, for sure. So I think it's important to consider both the physical setting where the local anaesthetic is given, whether that be theatre or the ward um, or the emergency department, um, and also the route of administration. So we consider an accidental intravascular, sorry, intravenous or intra-arterial injection yep. versus correctly administering the local but in super therapeutic or toxic levels. So yep. both the physical setting where we're delivering it and then also how much we're giving some, some examples that King Edward would include on labour ward um, where ladies have epidurals cited and we're running infusions of local anaesthetic epidurals. Um, so we want to make sure that's getting administered to the appropriate site i.e. the epidural catheter rather than say connected to an intravenous line yeah. um, and also on the labour ward we also have nurse led um, epidural boluses um, which fo- follow a specified protocol and that protocol helps to um, ensure the safety of such injections so therefore nurse training is important um, and also making sure that it's administered to the right place. Aside from labour ward, we also use the local anaesthetics a lot in the operating theatre. So here at King Edward, we typically use a lot of intravenous local anaesthetic or lignocaine infusions, yep. the therapeutic effect. Um, so that's directly in, into the bloodstream and we need to be quite cautious about how much we're giving and monitor for side effects. Similarly, in the theatre, we top up epidurals regularly from labour ward and we need to make sure that we're confident they're sited in the right place and that we're using the right right amount of local anaesthetic to, to those epidurals. And away from the anaesthetic side of things, also surgeons are utilising local anaesthetics a lot in theatre, often assisting us with blocks, whether that be tap blocks or rectus sheath blocks, and similarly parapservical blocks are often utilised, so once again ensuring that they're administered to the appropriate tissue, not intravascularly, and at safe doses. Yep. And finally, on the ward and ASCU, we often have rectus sheath catheters cited, um, and, and sometimes even run local anaesthetic infusions in towards ASCU, so making sure they're monitored safely. So that would be the, the, the settings that we could potentially come across last in our practice.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, um so maybe just uh to reiterate that. So some of the things that I've heard of uh, occurring in the past where where people have had this, you know, this almost life-threatening events where local anesthetic has um, been injected is um perhaps not an obstetrics in gynecology, but I know of a, a case where um plastic surgeon was uh directly infiltrating local anesthetic and uh they thought they were putting a very dilute solution of um into the patient uh, for liposuction but um, one of the scrub nurses had accidentally grabbed um, a solution that was actually five times stronger than it should have been and so they gave like you know 500% more than they should have and that patient um, I think may have been brain damaged or may have even died um, so so being aware of what you know having mixes up, mix ups where you get the wrong strength of the local anaesthetic and, and don't calculate the dose appropriately um and then the other things that we've all, I know as anaesthetists we're always um, aware of is the fact that it is possible to connect um, epidural and regional um, infusion catheters to intravenous tubing, and we're all human, and um, until um, a system comes out where those um, tubings uh, systems are not, uh, not compatible, in other words, they don't screw into each other, um, this, it's always going to be a problem that we might have to um, face. So hopefully that is going to be changing soon. So that's good. So... Um, Right, do you want to tell us about some of the changes? Um, we thought we might just touch upon intralipid first, and then we'll talk about some of the other things in the ASRA guideline.
0: For sure. So intralipid um, has come into, into vogue as a treatment, as an effective treatment for local anaesthetic sy- systemic toxicity over the last sort of decade and a half, since mid, early mid-2000s, and it's proven to be a life-saving rescue therapy for last. Um, its mechanism of actions traditionally were as a, as a lipid sink, where it was thought to soak up the local anaesthetic and reduce its plasma concentration and thus reducing its toxic effects. Um, The recent ASRA guidelines has made direct reference to the more recently proposed mechanisms of action um, and they comprise active shuttling, cardiotonic effects and also post-conditioning, cardioprotective effects of of this intralipid. Um, So active shuttling involves physically removing the local anaesthetic away from the heart and brain Um, towards its areas of metabolism such as the liver so reducing the the, the toxic concentrations in those organs um, to help reduce its toxic effect the cardiotonic effect involves um, improving myocardial and vascular performance by giving a bolus of of fluid to the intravascular space to try and improve the heart's effect Um, and some of the post-conditioning cardioparic effects sort of mimic cardiac ischemic preconditioning where um, similar mechanisms of action are proposed where the heart's placed under stress but then can tolerate further stress better. So there's some of the newer mechanisms of action and you could refer to the talk that I've written up to sort of get some more information on that because we won't go into a lot of detail but there's more more recent mechanisms of actions proposed.
1: Yep, so just to um, clarify that for people who aren't familiar with it, I know, most anaesthetists have heard of this because it's been around for a long time now, over a decade I think. Basically, uh, most um, guidelines for cardiac arrest or, or you know, very, you know, peri-arrest situations which are thought to be due to accidental local anesthetic overdose include the use of um, intralipid, which is the, the sort of white um, lipids um, stuff that's in a big glass bottle, which was usually used for, for parenteral nutrition or feeding. Yeah, and so um, basically what uh, Chris was talking about was the we don't understand how it works, but uh, it does seem to work. So that, those are the sort of current theories. Um, and and following on from that, so we do keep it um, in uh, two lo- two or three locations in most hospitals, uh, anywhere where we think this uh, syndrome could occur. Basically, so it's on usually on the arrest trolley uh, and uh, in theatre and or places like labour wards. Um, so what are the th- so there's more than one um, internationally. There's more than one or two guidelines for the management of Last syndrome, yeah. do you want to talk about the most common ones that are used?
0: Here? Sure. So, the two main um, management guidelines for last that most anesthetists will be familiar with, and, and also intensivists and emergency doctors, um, are the AA GBI or anesthetists of Great Britain and Ireland guidelines. They're the pink red laminated placards and they're often found on our regional trolleys. There's also the ASRA guidelines, so the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. They've also just released an updated guideline this year. So, they reinforce the major management principles. Um, to be undertaken during last and it focuses on attenuating the key life threats to airway breathing and circulation uh, with the concurrent administration, as you mentioned, of intralipid rescue. So it's focusing on stabilising early and effectively airway breathing and circulation and early administration of intralipid, which we'll come to a little bit more in um, in, a, in, a, in a couple of minutes' time. Um, so I guess next we could discuss some of the key points to take away from the actual publication um, that, that came yeah, out. Roger. And... it
1: sounds good. So I think... Um... Uh, you've written a few notes for me here, but it looks like the the Ezra publication has been updated because they've actually you know looked at case reports and tried to sort of ascertain what's working, what's not. And uh, do you want to give the the listeners and myself actually a bit of an education on that?
0: Yeah, for sure. So um, ASRA released updated guidelines early this year in their journal. They also um, undertook a review of recent case reports and registries for local anaesthetic systemic toxicity cases between March two thousand and fourteen and November 2016, so over roughly two and a half years. Um, and, and these case reports and reviews um, reviewed key patient demographics, so where the types of patients it was occurring in, the settings that LAST occurred in, yep. um, and some of the specific <coughs> practitioners or practitioner providers that um, unfortunately cause LAST in their patients, which is obviously quite undesirable. Yep. Um, and it also looked at other things like the culprit block types and the types of local anaesthetics that we use. So that, that's actually quite interesting to have a read All about. Right.
1: Yeah, why don't you um, summarise those for us because I'm, I'm interested to hear and I'm sure the listeners are as well. So, For sure. Um,
0: so who
1: are the people who seem to be um, making up most of these case reports? Yep, so
0: there's 47 cases of last described in about 35 published articles over this yep. period of time. Um, the key demographics were that patient's ages range from between four months to 88 years. So that suggests that no patient is immune to last, particularly paediatric populations where a lot of penile blocks are done. Yep. Around 20% of the cases occurred in those less than 12 months of age, um, 63%, so you know, two-thirds were between two years of age to seven years of age, so that the bulk was you know right across children, teenagers through adults. Yep,
1: so pretty much anyone who gets local anaesthetic could get this, couldn't they? Exactly okay. right,
0: yep. The practice settings described about 80% of cases occurred in the hospital, suggesting where the majority of local anaesthetics administered. 11% occurred in clinics or offices, and 9% right. so, in so the open, home.
1: like outpatient procedures and that sort of thing? Yep. Correct,
0: correct. Um, In the hospital, around two-thirds occurred in the operating theatre, which is where our place of work is. Um, 14% um, of last occurred in in PACU, 8% on the wards, 8% in ED, and roughly 3% in ICU. So a good spread. The practitioner providers, or those that administer the the local and cause last in their patients, anaesthetists made up 50% of cases, but that obviously suggests um, it's it's skewed towards us because it's a large part of our practice. Surgeons, 33%, so a third. 9% in dentists. Wow, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, five percent in ED doctors, and two percent was, which was um, probably one case out of those forty-five, was a self-administration, so likely a suicide attempt. Um, yeah, so that was all quite interesting features to note from yeah. from reviewing okay. all that.
1: And can you just sort of briefly summarise? So I guess like you know, case reports are only the tip of the iceberg, really. I mean, yep. a lot of, uh, I know personally, I've a lot of um, I heard of cases that have occurred in uh, Western Australia here, and I'm sure none of them have been published case report. so I imagine there's a whole heap of cases out there that don't make it into uh, journals mm-hmm. um, do you want to just briefly summarise the types of blocks and types of local anaesthetic sure just gives us a bit of an idea of what to
0: think just quickly um, of, of the blocks of the 45 cases of last um, around 25% with penile blocks so in a paediatric population yep. um, roughly tw- of 15 to 20% were just local infiltration of the local anaesthetic so likely by surgeons but didn't specify but it's local infiltration of wounds Neuraxial blocks made up about 15%, and then upper and lower extremity blocks made up about 10% each.
1: Okay. So the local so certainly in the women's hospital here on obstetrics and gynaecology, local infiltration and neuraxial blocks, they're all definitely very relevant, aren't they?
0: Yeah, definitely. It, um, they're up at around 15%, so reasonably yeah. high. Yep. 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 The types of local use, so bupivacaine was a major culprit, um, making up around 35% of those cases, of 45 cases, 47 cases, so around a third of them. Um and then lignocaine or epivocaine, but we're following in at around 25% and 20% respectively. So they're, they're most likely the, the most commonly used locals as well. Yeah. A, probably an interesting point is the timing of onset of last. So 40% of last cases manifested themselves immediately. So they, they okay. were really quickly... Um, so,
1: th- so that's likely to be if, uh, if they're being injected... Uh, intravescularly. Is, is we say?
0: Yep, yeah, correct. So into the bloodstream and then it yields last within seconds. Yep. Um, a subsequent 20% occurred within the first hour. So you can see that 60% of cases occurred either immediately or within the first hour. Um, yeah. So the remaining 35 to 40% would be of a of, of greater onset duration later, potentially reflecting infusions or, or regional catheters, et cetera, that slowly become yeah. super therapeutic.
1: Okay. That's interesting. So good. And um uh, what, are the, what are the other things that you wanted to mention? So, what are probably what's, just what's, probably just the outcomes of life? Yeah. What's the damage? Yeah. You know,
0: what, what are the outcomes? So, this is you know potentially a really life threatening situation if it's not treated effectively and quickly. Um, but these case reports demonstrated that when patients got good care, they actually achieved pretty good outcomes, which is which is really reassuring. So, of the forty seven patients in this case series, ten percent of patients required some form of cardiac life support that lasted between two minutes to an hour. So yep. included CPR plus or minus AED or manual DFib, plus or minus adrenaline. Um, so of those ten patients that required advanced forms of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, um, nine of the ten were treated with intralipid emulsion therapy, and seven survived. Right. Okay. One the other patient was not treated with intralipid, but did also survive. So there was only two deaths out of all those forty-seven cases, which is quite amazing. Um, one death was likely due to a delayed diagnosis of last, and it was and delayed treatment. Um, and this was in an elderly patient with multiple comorbidities and risk factors. And the second death was in a patient who didn't receive intralipid emulsion. Um, and they'd self-administered more than 4,000 milligrams of lignocaine. So it was unlikely they were ever going to potentially have a good result. that
1: was topical as well. So that's interesting. So I know that people can buy creams and they put them under uh, things like Wrap. Um, uh, um, so maybe that, maybe that was that case report. Potentially, yeah. All right. So this uh, so this is the interesting part. So um, a lot of us are sort of f- uh, familiar with the uh, earlier versions of the guidelines to, on, on how to manage um, last. So what are the, some of the um, key changes or updates or um, do you want to just perhaps summarise in, in this latest uh, guidelines? Yeah, for wh- sure. What, what, what should we be thinking and how should we manage
0: it? So the, the recent ASRA guideline emphasizes um, an emergency management guideline similar to that in the AAGBI guideline, and the key points include stop injecting the local anaesthetic as soon as possible yep. if you d- detect signs of last, call for help early, and call for intralipid early. Yep. And it also emphasizes early control of airway breathing and circulation, as we mentioned earlier. Patients can often seize, so displaying those neuroexcitatory um, phenomena of seizures, and if that date occur, you need to terminate them early with benzodiazepines. Okay. Um, it also emphasizes the ASRA guideline also emphasises the early notification to the nearest cardiopulmonary bypass service to prepare the, um, to receive a patient for ECMO, which is a newer um, addition to this guideline, which is quite interesting.
1: Yes, that's right. So ECMO certainly is getting a bit of press and lots of um, uh, other um, scenarios as well, isn't it? But um, we'll perhaps talk about that in a, in a little while. Sure. Um, or do you want to talk about it now? <laughs> I
0: guess just just to tease out those points of airway, breathing and circulation yeah. a bit more. Um, so the ASRA guideline emphasises the Management of cardiac arrest in lasts um, as it does from the ALS2 algorithm, but there's several points that are specific to local anaesthetic systemic toxicity that we need to note, so it requires a slight deviation from that's right. So the instead, of, instead, ALS of sticking, instead of just
1: ticking, instead of just ticking to your ALS teach uh, algorithms that you're taught and uh, drilled into if you've done ALS, you've got to yep. think you've got to actually uh, use your brain and uh, do a few other things as well, of course. You?
0: Yeah, so with an arrested okay. patient, you're going to institute CPR, utilize defibrillation, adrenaline, um, and try and correct your H's and T's as far as possible, but considering that this arrest is likely precipitated by a a local anesthetic toxin, we need to institute management directly to that toxin. Yep. So firstly, looking directly at airway and breathing, um, the successful treatment of LAST hinges on airway security. So the patient should be intubated and ventilated. um, And that's to to correct hypoxia and hypercapnia and acidosis, because these can all potentiate LAST and negatively impact resuscitative efforts. Yep. Um, So the mechanism Of potentiation of last may be related to increased free fraction of local anesthetic, which plus or minus worsening of cardiac function in an acidemic environment. So therefore, we need to blow off that acid and return and target a normal pH as far as possible. So, okay, good. If they are acidemic, hyperventilate. If they're alkalemic, maybe slow the ventilation down. But you want to target a normal pH.
1: Okay. Is there any role? I'm just going any role for sodium bicarbonate?
0: Potentially, if they're profoundly acidemic, I think that would be worth utilising. Yep, okay, good. Looking at circulation, good quality CPR is emphasised. Um, so the ASRA guideline emphasises this. We need to continue good effective CPR because we need it. once we administer intralipid emulsion, which I'll come to, it's really important to circulate effectively through the heart and through the coronaries to remove the, the local anaesthetic from its effect site on the heart. That's right, yeah. So good quality CPR is really important and emphasised. <clears throat> and
1: that's good for any um, cardiac arrest, isn't it? I mean, that's, it is. Yep. the overwhelming evidence is that the quality of CPR is um, a lot more important than any of the other things we do in, in the
0: advanced life support. Definitely, so that's looking at airway breathing circulation and D for drugs, intralipid emulsion is required to be called for early and administered. Um, and the, the doses that are that are emphasized and, and are similar with the double GBI guidelines, the key numbers to remember are 1.5, 15, 12. So if you just write them down, 1.5, 15, 12. Yep. One so, do we
1: need to write those down? Well, if you can or should comi- we have it on a card on, sh- the, on the arrest trolley?
0: Yeah, definitely. I like to commit to memory, <laughs> but certainly util- utilizing yeah. cognitive aid will help you with yeah. resuscitation efforts. So, I think
1: if anyone out there who's listening, if you haven't got um, intralipid on your cardiac arrest trolley and you're in, uh, in theatre and/or labour ward, you should. And right next to the intralipid, um, just have a laminated card with all the stuff written on it, because it's going to be hard to remember the stuff in uh, definitely in these yep. sorts of situations.
0: So utilize an intralipid early. And, and the final point that I'll just mention from the ASRA guidelines is it makes some recommendations on specific adrenaline dosing. So typically yep. in an arrested patient for a non-shockable rhythm, we utilize a milligram of adrenaline. But the ASRA guideline, based on recent data from RAP models, has emphasized a lower dose of adrenaline to be used. So um, Weinberg et al., who've done quite a lot of work into the use of intralipid therapy, um, have, administ- have discussed that when is administered in large doses in the context of last, it can have significant negative effects such as propagates metabolic acidosis, impairs pulmonary gas exchange and can cause pulmonary edema. So yep. they've therefore recommended decreased adrenaline doses at 0.5 to 1 mic per kilo. So if you remember 1 mic per kilo, that's roughly 70 mics for a 70-kilo yep. person. So it sounds like 50 to 100 mic uh, boluses are the way to go. Spot on. Yep. As opposed to the 1 milligram. So significantly dose reduced, roughly a tenth.
1: Yep, so that's right. So a tenth. Uh, so put a milligram in 20 mils of... Uh, one milligram diluted into a 20 mil syringe and give uh, one or two mils at a time that's Perfect. 50 to 100 mics that sounds good okay um so we've talked about intralipid i think we should um just um uh we'll put some links to the um uh, the ASRA and the aagbi guidelines do yep. you want to just before we finish perhaps just mention um the role this, this interesting um, new recommendation on the role of ecmo and refractory last syndrome i have heard of cases in the past where people have been put on uh, this is before these guidelines were written were many years ago where people had um this syndrome in, in the theater next to the cardiac theater and they've been um, chucked onto cardiopulmonary bypass with um with very good results so um so sure. this is not a new thing i don't think but um it certainly sounds like it's been emphasized
0: yeah so the azra guidelines have now made reference to notifying an ecmo center early if you have it in within your own hospital where last occurs fantastic notify the perfusionists and the team's relevant to get that going but certainly if you're in a, in a peripheral hospital you need to institute your ALS2 with your deviations the algorithm that we've just mentioned but also certainly notify an ECMO centre and prepare for transfer because the resuscitative efforts and CPR required for patients with LAS can be prolonged and therefore ECMO can be utilised to assist um, with ongoing uh, prolonged um, resuscitative efforts.
1: Yeah that's right and just a quick comment so you know someone like uh, a young and healthy person who, who's had um who has the syndrome? And as long as you're doing really good CPR and really good resuscitation, it might well be that you know even if they have been arrested for a prolonged periods of time, that they uh, still have a could have a really good outcome with um, ECMO because it's such a reversible um, cause, and the, and and the local anaesthetic may even be uh, neuroprotective to the CNS. So exactly, don't give up on them if if uh, if you haven't got a return of circulation after say half an hour. If if you're not if it's not too to Heart Institute try and get them somewhere where they can try ECMO Sounds especially really if they're yep. young and healthy so with, well, I'm thinking you know of an obstetric patient who's had some sort of catastrophe like this yep. you know we should really be thinking about keeping going until we've tried everything
0: I would agree definitely
1: okay so do you want to just um, some people have probably even, never even heard of ECMO or if they have they don't really fully understand you want to just um, run over what is ECMO and how it works and sure. what, what's the theory behind why it might work in these sort of toxicological poisonings
0: yep so ECMO stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation um, and it has a valuable role in cardiopulmonary collapse that is refractory to the traditional advanced life support treatments, yep. so where these uh, resuscitative measures are going to be prolonged. ECMO basically provides a method for oxygenating blood uh, to perfuse the vital organs and peripheral tissues without the need for the intrinsic cardiac and lung function that we normally have. So when, when they're compromised, such as in arrest, we can utilize ECMO to oxygenate the blood and therefore perfuse our vital organs. There's a term eCPR or ECMO-CPR that is becoming used more frequently and this describes cardiopulmonary resuscitation undertaken with the assistance of ECMO uh, in a cardiac arrest scenario which is otherwise refractory to the standard ALS interventions. So some specific clinical <coughs> situations that this would include where it would be warranted would be LAST for example or shock refractory VF where they're just not responding to the traditional ALS. Okay, um,
1: so how, do, how does someone do ECMO? It's usually um, people who have um, experience with uh, the, the people who are really experienced with this are the cardiac surgeons, but there are other people doing it now as well. But what, what, sure. do, they, what do they do? Tell us about the different types. Yes, yeah, so ECMO
0: needs to be undertaken in a, in a special centre with people that are capable of setting this up and running it, so it requires quite specialised personnel. There's several different modes that can be utilised. The two key modes are VA and VV ECMO. The first one, VA ECMO, is where a venous, a venous cannula is placed in a large central vein and blood is drawn from the patient and then passed through an oxygenator, and the blood is then returned to the arterial system via a large return cannula placed in the aorta. Yep. So basically this bypasses the heart and lungs and allows the, the blood to be oxygenated externally and pumped so that cardiac output is maintained, or not cardiac output, rather blood flow is maintained and oxygenation is maintained, so that's where the okay. last would be. So you can keep your yeah, heart and your
1: brain and all your other vital organs alive yep. whilst you're waiting for the local anaesthetic to be metabolised and... Uh... And removed. And removed, Correct.
0: Yep. The second mode of ECMO is VV ECMO. I'll just mention that briefly. And that's to support the lungs only. So that's when you'd still have the heart pump functioning. But if your lungs were compromised, say, in yeah. really bad ARDS, and that would involve two venous, right. venous cannula <clears throat> with an external oxygenator. And...
1: So not really relevant to LAR syndrome, but no. certainly back in the, in the H1N1 epidemic where lots of pregnant women had severe um, pneumonia and their lungs stopped working, there were quite a few women had VV ECMO in, in ICU, didn't they? A yep. pregnant
0: woman. Yep. Yep. Spot on.
1: Okay, so um, we won't go on for too much longer. But is there any uh, anything else about ECMO you're gonna? What else about ECMO did you wanna highlight? There's a bit highlight? of information
0: on the evidence for it, and then also some of the limitations. Probably, I guess, just finally, there's lots of, I guess, from an evidence point of view, there's there's lots of literature now coming out online about it. Um, there's been some really good case series out of the US, um, where a couple of centres are utilising ECMO a lot and have written up a, a, quite a few case series, and also probably more reference to Australia. The CHEAR trial published by the, the guys at the Alfred in Melbourne in 2015 is also really worth a read if you want to read up a bit more about the evidence. Yeah. Um, but that that's not necessarily in the context of LAST, but it's in refractory cardiac arrest um, from patients from the community where ECMO is instituted to assist with the resuscitative efforts, and it's showing some really promising outcomes. So I guess maybe just finally we could talk about the limitations of ECMO um, to conclude.
1: Yep. So, so just summarising your last comment. So, basically, yep. the the evidence for ECMO and the last and last syndrome is really just sort of case case reports and case series.
0: Correct. Um, yep. But they're
1: similar to intralipid, still very um, promising.
0: Yeah, definitely. We, there's okay. a lot of data for out of hospital arrest where ECMO is utilised, and we could ex- potentially extrapolate that to last. But there's certainly individual case reports that, yeah, as you've mentioned. And I think it has been ECMO used
1: for um, for other toxicological poisonings, um, including others. You know, very serious. Um, Toxins like calcium channel blockers and things like that, which also affect the heart similar in a similar manner to um, local anesthetics yeah.
0: all right. What are the limitations so from from the evidence um, and and just from a common sense point of view, external validity of, of ECMO is probably the major issue. so how can we apply this evidence to all hospitals and all centers? We can't necessarily apply the evidence generated in really big tertiary centers to small hospitals such as ours and regional hospitals. Um, we need to have specialized personnel and specialized equipment to run ECMO, so therefore. It's only really available in those big centres, so therefore, yep. it emphasises the need that if we are going to provide ECMO um, and this treatment option, we need to get our patients to the hospitals. Yep. Um, um, some places like Paris
1: have actually have um, mobile ECMO um, resuscitation teams, and there's this. Uh, if anyone's out there is interested and wants to Google it, um, type ECMO in, and the Louvre into uh, into the Google search engine, and you'll see some amazing pictures of them of the Paris team there putting someone on ECMO in the on the floor of the uh, the Louvre Museum. We don't have that here in W in uh, WA or Australia as far as I'm aware, but certainly um, you know, getting someone to a hospital which can perform it if, if they if this occurs and they live in, and it occurs in a, in a hospital in the metropolitan region of most of the capital cities in Australia, um, it's not a big uh, stretch to try and get them uh, uh, transferred in a, a rapid fashion to the you know tertiary centre that has their services definitely, yep, for sure alright, well that was really interesting um, thanks Chris and uh, thanks again for putting that together and giving us a presentation to the department um, if anyone has any questions or comments please log on and uh, uh, tell us what you think if anyone has any, any suggestions for uh, some more interesting talks also let us know ok, thanks thanks Roger thanks for listening everyone please go to the itunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it write a review this will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the itunes menu if you're also interested please go to our website at www.opsandguiningcritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic you've just listened to see you again next time